right, children can now be dismissed to uh, go with the Navarros. <laughs> Bye, kiddos. <laughs> Josh, is my uh, is my mic on? Can't tell. Can you guys hear me okay? You don't think so? Maybe turn it up there, Josh. All right, so tonight is the second to last uh, passage, the second to last lesson in uh, the book of James. We have been walking through the entire book of James, and next week uh, we will actually wrap up what has been, in my opinion, an incredible, very practical uh, book. And my hope is that this series has helped to shape you more into the image of Christ. Tonight, um, I want to address something that has sort of become a a bit of an epidemic in popular Christianity, and that is a shallow relationship with the church. As I'm sure all of you have heard before, about 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. Now, we also all know very well that that is not really the case. That according to Jesus' definition of Christianity, according to the biblical definition of Christianity, there's no way that 75% of our nation's people are committed followers of Christ. Of those who claim that they are Christians, less than a quarter believe the Bible to be a word of God, less than a quarter believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, less than a quarter have any kind of consistent relationship with the church. So, knowing those things, it's impossible that 75% of Americans are actually committed followers of Jesus. But, even among those who do claim the central parts of the Christian faith, the relationship to the church remains, in many cases, very shallow. Many people who claim that they follow Jesus also believe that that does not require at all any kind of relationship with the church. They say, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. They believe that a relationship with God does not require that they be in attendance in a local congregation. They say, I can follow God on my own. I don't really need all the negativity that comes with those people. And so, they continue to attend Bedside Baptist every week. Others do attend in a local body, But their involvement in that local body is little more than slipping into the back door and sitting in the back row once the service starts and then quickly exiting as soon as the service ends. Whether it is out of fear or some other reason, there is a lack of investment into real relationship with the other members of the body. Still others are much more involved than that and have relationship, but many times our attitudes 
us included, our attitudes about the church border on narcissism. What I mean is that many view church as a place that I go to get something. We say, I attend a church service to be blessed and to be filled. And that person doesn't always view the church as a place to serve and to give. Have you ever thought about even the way that we often interact with worship music could be viewed as narcissistic? Because oftentimes we approach worship music with a desire to be awed, to be filled. We expect God to bless us with an experience instead of viewing worship as something we come to give God because he deserves it. And that it's not really about what I feel. Far too often, church is about me. The point is, Many people don't have a deep enough view of their need for God and their need for each other. I'm considering, at the conclusion of this study, doing a full study on that very topic. But for today, I believe that the message that James wants to leave us with at the end of his letter is this. And this is something I'll be repeating a few times. Our circumstances, whether hurtful or happy, should draw us closer to God and deeper into community. Our circumstances, whether hurtful or happy, should draw us closer to God and deeper into community. When I was in high school, Director Peter Jackson directed a trilogy of movies based on the works by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the series The Lord of the Rings. A few fans here, that's good. Um, so when I, uh, when I was growing up, we had this tradition that every Christmas morning, we'd get up, we'd do our family devotions, we would open presents, then we'd eat breakfast, and then... The afternoon on Christmas Day, we'd go to the movies. And I always felt terrible for the people that had to work on Christmas Day at the movies, but there I was perpetuating their suffering, so I had to take blame for it. But every time I walked in, I was like, man, I feel bad for these people, but I sure am glad they're here. (laughs) But for several years running, uh, we would go on Christmas Day and watch the newly released uh, installment of the Lord of the Rings series. Now, this was about 16 years ago, so there are some in this room who were babies, uh, but we're not going to talk about that anymore. Um, If you haven't seen the movies, or especially if you haven't read the books, as always, the book is even better than the movie, you are truly missing out. Most of you probably already know the general plot of the series, so I won't spend Uh, all that much time going into it. But essentially, you know, Frodo Baggins, the hobbit, is given the task of taking a powerful ring, the one ring, into Mordor and destroying it in the flames of Mount Doom. But Frodo is not called to carry out his mission alone. He's surrounded by a team of friends 
that are made up of the various races of Middle Earth, each with a part to play in helping him to save the world. And this team is called by the, first, uh, by, by the same name as the first book, the Fellowship of the Ring. Gandalf the Wizard, uh, Gandalf the Grey, the organizer of this team, is completely aware that Frodo cannot carry out this task on his own. If, if he tried, he would die. Because what he carries has the power to kill him. And so, this fellowship is called to support him in his mission. But out of the fellowship, there's, there's no one who is closer, no one who's more essential to Frodo than his best friend, Samwise Gamgee. In various ways, every single member of the fellowship nearly or completely fails Frodo at various times, except for Sam. Sam is always there. In the final movie, The Return of the King, Sam, Frodo, and Smeagol, Gollum, are in Mordor, and they're approaching Mount Doom. Frodo, in this time, is bewitched by the darkness that he's carrying. He, he cannot think clearly. At this time, Gollum still wants to steal the ring and sees this as the perfect opportunity to trick Frodo because Frodo is in a weakened state. So, his plan is that he tries to break up Sam and Frodo by secretly throwing away the rest of their rations. They have this elven bread. So he throws it away, and then he blames Sam for throwing away the rest of the food. Or, I'm sorry, he blames Sam for eating the rest of the food. He says that Sam ate the rest of the food. Sam, of course, pleads his innocence. He says, Frodo, please believe me, it wasn't me. It was Smeagol. Smeagol? No, 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 poor Smeagol. Smeagol hates nasty elf bread. Look, crumbs on his jacket says, Hey, turkey, hey, turkey, come, come. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> My precious. <laughs> Sam blames the ring for Frodo's confusion, a right assessment. And continuing to be the friend that he is, he says to Frodo, I can carry the ring for a while. Share the load. But of course, Sam cannot carry the ring. He's not called to carry the ring. Frodo must. So later, as they're at the base of Mount Doom, Frodo collapses. He is unable to continue any longer. Sam kneels down and tries to comfort him. He, he asks Frodo, do you remember the Shire? The smell of the flowers, the farmers and their crops, the birds singing in the bushes, the taste of the strawberries. And Frodo responds that, that he can't remember at all, that all he can see is darkness and fear and fire. This time, Sam's response to him is even more powerful. He says, 
then let's be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo, I cannot carry it for you, but I can carry you. He then picks up Frodo, puts him over his shoulders, and carries him up the rest of the way to Mount Doom to complete their mission. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the type of relationship that James would call us to have with one another. A relationship of shared mission, shared responsibility, shared joy, shared pain, shared sin, shared healing, shared intimacy with God. We are not called to live on our own. We are called to share the load. So, let's look now in the scriptures, in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and going to verse 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, before we dive in, I want to issue a disclaimer that this passage has been the subject of heated debate for a long, long time. There are a number of practices in various denominations and religious backgrounds that have been based on the verses that we just read that, again, have been debated over for centuries. Among those include guaranteed healing that seems to be promised, Also, we have the topic of confession, uh, the practice of confessing sins to a priest, the, uh, the, the practice of performing the last rites on the sick is also based on this passage. And so, I think you would agree that on the surface, this passage seems to make some bold claims. That any suffering can be solved with prayer. That elders can pray for the sick and immediately heal them. And that they or another church member can forgive sin. But are those the conclusions that we will draw? The answer is no. And again, we're going to get into some places that are a little bit confusing, and I wish I had a much longer time to really break all of this down. But I want to remind us once more of the big idea that James desires for us to glean from this passage. 
our circumstances, whether hurtful or happy, should draw us closer to God and deeper into community. So, let's start with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So here's point number one. God is to be trusted in hardship and worshipped in happiness. God is to be trusted in hardship and worshipped in happiness. If we aren't careful, it could seem like James is being just a little bit trite in this verse. It seems incredibly simple, almost too simple. Imagine you are suffering in some way, especially in a deeply painful sort of a way, and someone approached you and simply said, oh, you should pray about that. How would you receive that word? You would likely say, "Uh, thanks a lot, dude. Great advice. But James is not being trite. This is not a drive-by piece of advice. Remember where this passage is located. This is located at the end of his letter, at the end of the book. In the conclusion, it is a part of a summary. These last verses are to be taken as a summary of the rest of what James has already said in the book so far. When he says he should pray, He has already covered in the rest of the book what to pray and how to pray. He's already talked in the rest of this book how we should approach God in the midst of suffering. For example, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the next verse, he talks about asking God for wisdom so that we can suffer wisely, and that God will give you the wisdom that you need. Or in verse 12 of chapter 1, where he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Then in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, which we looked at last week, he talks about being patient in suffering, being grounded, being anchored. And we used that word in the last song that we sang, my anchor holds within the veil. Do you want to know practically what that looks like? To be anchored. Looks a lot like my wife. Last night, before going to bed, she and I had a very long talk about all of what we've been experiencing. As we're laying down in bed, we just finished a a TV show, and I turned over to her and I said, So, how are you feeling? Now, we all know what follows when you ask a woman, How are you feeling? If there is any type of honesty there, what will follow will be at least an hour in mostly one sentence without break for breath. That's typically how it goes. 
this conversation that, that I had with my wife last night, and she's watching right now, hopefully not angry that I just said that. <laughs> what was shared with me in this conversation brought me to a place of tears, but not tears of sadness. It was tears of joy, tears of, of pride, tears of awe as I listened to what my wife was sharing with me about how God has been using our experience in the last couple of weeks to strengthen her. I watched as through her tears, she explained with a smile on her face, this is the good stuff. And it seems so backwards because pain and death shouldn't make me hopeful and more trusting in in the goodness of God. But it has and it does. And he's given me this incredible gift. She shared with me how before uh, the suffering began, and and she said, I had a feeling that something bad was about to happen. And in that moment, I felt the Lord impress upon my soul, put your anchor down into joy. Anchor into joy. And that anchor has held me through this storm. That, That no matter how hard this has been, I'm not shaken, and I'm not mad at God, and this is the first time. She said, this is the first time I've ever walked through a situation like this and handled it, I believe, how I I should, because God had me anchored in to joy first. I'm also reminded of one of the lyrics of uh, one of my favorite songs, uh, a song written by a group of my former students. The chorus of this song has a refrain that I have sang to myself many times. It says, Though my sails are tattered, my anchor holds. Though the storm rages on, I am not alone. He who commands the winds and the waves is strong enough to save you. I love it. Though my sails are tattered, my anchor holds. Though the storm rages on, I'm not alone. That is what James is referring to here when he says very simply, Is any one of you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Pray that God will establish you. Pray that God will anchor you. Pray that God will give you the right perspective. Pray that in the midst of death, there can be life. Pray that in the midst of darkness, you can see light. Pray that out of ashes, beauty will rise. Pray that when everything is going wrong, you can see the truth of all that is right In Jesus Christ. If you are suffering, let it drive you closer to God rather than letting it drive you further away. Because suffering can only take you one of two directions closer to Him or further. If you are suffering, your one call is to pray. But then, James also touches on something that he hasn't really talked much about in previous chapters. That was kind of a summary statement 
on things that he said before, but then he follows it up with a statement that isn't really summarizing much of what he said, although there are certainly places that we can point to. But this is kind of building upon the thought, adding another layer to his argument. And that is what to do when things are going well. I believe that he puts this here on purpose because he knows what our tendency is. Our tendency is to seek God when things are hard, but then to forget him entirely when things are going well. In the happy moments, it's then that we forget about our need for God. It's in those happy moments that we start to become proud, that we start to become self-focused. It's in those moments that we start taking credit for things. When we start saying things like, I built this. I earned this. I made this happen. I'm a self-made man or woman. And James here says, no, do not do that. When you are cheerful, don't forget to give credit where credit is due. God is the one who put you in this good place. God is the good father who provided this blessing. See, we we love to point out God's perceived absence when things are hard. We love to question him when things go wrong. When we view what we think as a lack of action, we blame him. The so-called problem of evil, the argument that says, if you look at all that is terrible in the world, that is evidence that God does not exist. And that if he does exist, he is not good. We're really good at that. We're not so good at thanking him when he gives us the good that we actually hope for. And just as easily as we could say, look at all the bad. Is God even there? We ought to look at the good and say, well, obviously he is. He says, if you are suffering, pray. And if you're cheerful, pray. Here he says, let him sing songs of praise same idea we come before the lord and we place the good in his hands just as much as we put the bad now i'm not sure if you noticed this when we read this passage but every single verse in this text every single one uses the word pray look in verse 13 is anyone among you suffering Let him pray. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. Verse 16. Confess your sins to another and pray that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently. Verse 18. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain. Every single one of these verses calls to pray. Every one of them 
pray. In this circumstance, pray. In that circumstance, pray. It's the entire point of what James is saying. Every single circumstance ought to lead us to pray. I love the way that one commentator, Stephen Cole, put it. He said, suffering should drive us to pray. So too should sufficiency. Suffering should drive us to pray. So too should sufficiency. Both the good and the bad should drive us into a deeper commitment to God. So, God is to be trusted in hardship and to be worshipped in happiness. Point number two. We are meant to follow Christ in community. We're called to follow Christ in community. Together. Read now verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, here is where the controversy begins. So let's unpack this a little bit. And allow me to lead us together into what James is really getting at here, which is that we are meant to share our suffering, we are meant to share our blessing, we share our physical burdens, we share our spiritual burdens, and as we'll see a little bit later, we share in our sin. Again, I wish that I had time in this context to go into tremendous detail. Unfortunately, I don't. So what follows has to be very general and vague. If you'd like to have further discussion with me afterward, I encourage that. So let's begin by talking about what these verses have been taken in the past to mean, but don't actually mean. First, this has been a favorite proof text for a long time for faith healing ministries, so-called faith healers. Many of us have seen the videos or heard the stories of ministries that fill up arenas and people come forward to be healed. Now, let me say up front, I do believe that God still heals people miraculously. I believe that 100%. Don't, after hearing what I'm about to say, jump to any conclusion that I don't believe that God heals. I have witnessed it firsthand. In fact, I have even, in one case, been the one praying when someone is miraculously healed. With that being said, I believe that the vast majority of what we see in so-called faith-healing ministries is a sham. It is a show. In the best cases, a misunderstanding. 
and in the worst cases, flat-out deception. I base this on what I believe the rest of the Bible teaches. I do not believe, according to Scripture, that any one person possesses the so-called gift of healing. Nor do I believe that anyone in the Bible did either. Now that might seem like a very controversial statement, because you might say, well, wait a minute, there were plenty of people in the Bible who were miraculously healed. Plenty of stories where one of the disciples or one of the apostles would go to someone who was sick and heal them, or even raise them from the dead. Absolutely, yes, that happened. But I believe that in every single one of those situations, it was because God was doing a miracle through a person, not because this person had a gift of healing. When Christ sent out the twelve, he sent them out and gave them authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And just like with Christ's ministry, these miracles are performed in order to establish and legitimize the spread of the gospel in the first century. Now, also to the twelve, he gave a similar ability, which was the ability to speak in the languages of the Jews from all around the world, to speak in tongues. And here, I think, is where we have to understand the key difference between gift and ability. There's a difference between being able to do something whenever we want and having the gift of participating in a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. In the first case, if it is an ability, one that we can use at whim, well, then that person would conceivably just be able to walk into a hospital and start zapping people. You're healed, and you're healed, and you're healed. Everybody's healed. That is not the case. In the second case, the the case of moving with the Holy Spirit, it is in this case that God actually intends to heal an individual for his own reasons, And he gives someone the gift of being the conduit through whom a prayer of faith is prayed for the sick. Which is the wording that James uses here where he says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Those are very different things. An ability and a gift. Here's something that we have to realize about the twelve disciples. These 12 disciples who were given the authority by God to cast out demons, to heal, even to raise people from the dead, these 12 did not continue to do so for the rest of their lives. They did so during a portion of ministry that legitimized the spread of the gospel. If they continued to have this ability for the rest of their lives, ladies and gentlemen, no one would have ever died. God gave these apostles these gifts in various special cases. The same is true 
today. I mentioned that I have witnessed firsthand people speaking in tongues. I've witnessed firsthand healing. I have, even in one case, been the one to pray over someone who is miraculously healed right in front of me. It was amazing. It was incredible. But I wouldn't stand up here and say, I have the gift of healing, bring me your sick. That's not how it works. God, for that particular moment, desired to do something incredible in this man's life, led me very specifically to pray over him, and I did, and watched something amazing happen. James says something very specific in this passage that, to me, rules out the idea of faith healers whose entire ministry is based on healing diseases. Notice in this passage who James tells the sick person to call upon. He tells them to call for the elders of the church. Notice that he does not say, call someone with the gift of healing. He does not say, call upon a traveling healer. What he says is, call upon the elders of your church. That's significant. I would say very significant. Because I don't think anyone would argue that every single church has elders with the so-called gift of healing. This one doesn't. If that is what James is calling for, then if you have the misfortune of attending a church like this one where there are no healers, well, I guess you're out of luck. James tells him, let him call on the elders of the church. The second thing that we have to see here, and, and this is where things get confusing, is there is the perceived unconditional language in this passage. What we see as unconditional language is a verse like, If any of you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. They pray over him, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That to us seems like an unconditional language. If someone is sick, let an elder pray, that person will be healed. But is that on the face what James is talking about here? Is that how it should be read? I would argue that based on other passages, passages in Scripture with similar unconditional language, that we ought to read this with a bit more wisdom. Look, for example, at Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Mark 11, verse 24, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This here on the surface, if we take it out of its context, seems to be an unconditionally written verse. He very clearly says, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. You've probably already guessed that this is one of those places where prosperity gospel teachers zero in on. A second place, John 
chapter 14, in verse 14. Actually, let's, uh, let's go to verse 13. John 14, beginning in verse 13. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, how should we read a verse like that? I can tell you with certainty, based on the rest of Scripture, that we cannot read a verse like that and say, God, I ask in your name for a million dollars. God, I ask in your name for a nice car, a beautiful house. God, I ask in your name that whatever your desire is, No, we cannot read those verses like that. God, heal this sick person. It's the same as asking for a million dollars. What is the key to reading these verses? The key is that the faith that is mentioned is in the will of God. Notice that when Christ is speaking, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. Worded differently, whatever you ask in my will is guaranteed to happen. If you align yourself with my heart, if you align yourself with my plan, if you align yourself with my desire, I can guarantee a yes when you pray. When it says in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Well, I can tell you that the desire of my heart is to watch Notre Dame win a football national championship, and I've been asking for it my entire life, and it hasn't happened since I was three, okay? So what does it mean? Well, the key is at the beginning of the verse where it says, delight yourself in the Lord first. That your delight is not in the thing that you're asking for. Your delight is in him. And when your delight is in him, he will mold you and shape you into his own image. So that your desires begin to reflect his desires. That you align with his plan, with his will. And then when you approach him and say, God, in your will, he says, yes, this is my will. And it will be done. And you get to participate in what I am doing. The key in this is faith in the will of God. If God says it, you believe it, and then you obey. None of those passages mean ask whatever you want and it will be yours. God is not a genie. Now the other thing that happens, if we take these passages just at face value, a faith healer will prey upon fear, the fear of not having enough faith. If you don't get healed, if you don't get the million dollars, it's your fault for not having enough faith. That's garbage. The truth is that it simply was not God's will for you to be healed of this disease in this way. You can't have faith in something that God did not ask you to have faith in. 
the key with faith is that you believe something that God says, not that you just make up whatever you want and then believe it hard enough. That is the key. And we know that that is what James is saying because of the example that he uses in this passage. He uses the example of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a guy just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Again, a a, a faith healer might come to this passage and go, See, Elijah was a guy just like us, and he had enough faith. And he said, It's not going to rain for three and a half years, and then it didn't rain. And then he had enough faith again, and it started raining. We should have the same faith, and we get whatever we want. But that is not what happened. If you go to the book of 1 Kings, what happens is that Elijah is spoken to by God. And God says to him, pray and tell the people that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And Elijah says, okay, I believe it. And I believe it so much that I'm willing to stand in front of the king at risk of my own life and say, look, buddy, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And then, at risk of my own life, I'm going to be the representative to this entire kingdom who now hates me because all of the crops are dying and they're looking at me going, just pray, dude. Pray. Make it rain. And Elijah finally says, I'm going to make it rain. But not because he wanted to, because God said, do this, and he obeyed. There's a difference between God making a promise and you obeying it and you just coming up with something hard enough to believe in. God says to Noah, trust me, build a boat. It's going to rain for a long time and you're going to need it. Noah says, all right, I believe it. I'm going to build the boat. There's a difference between that and you walking outside right now and saying, listen up. It's not going to rain for a long time. I guarantee you this. I guarantee you. I put my life on it. Not a single one of us, no matter how much faith we have, can just walk out of here and change the weather. Not going to happen. But it's not because of a lack of faith on our part. It's because God has not directed us to do that. We obey God's leading, not the other way around. If God were to say to us, Pray that it won't rain. Well, if he were to say that and we prayed, all right, keep the rain, and there was a drought, that would be a prayer of faith. The key is this. Where did the idea for this miracle originate? With God or with you? If it is with God, you pray in faith and you believe it, and it will happen. If it's with you, you don't have anyone to put faith in but yourself, and that is a guaranteed fail. So the prayer of faith that is offered in this passage is one in which God has determined for healing, and the elders, being appropriately faithful in the promises of God, pray over this person, and they are healed. And finally, we have to consider the time that this was written. How the audience that he's writing to 
would have typically interacted with disease. See, this is not a group of people that's like us. It's not like they could just go to the doctor if they were sick, especially if they're poor. This this people group, especially the poor, had little to no access whatsoever to health care of any kind. So, like with the gift of tongues given at Pentecost so that the gospel could spread to languages that nobody else spoke, healing was a miracle produced by God to spread the gospel in an otherwise impossible way. And we also have to note here the use of oil, which was not just used as a spiritual anointing. It was also used as a medical ointment. And so here, the elders are praying in faith, and they're using medicine. So all of that is what the passage does not mean. Here's what it does mean. You and I are called to be a part of the body. And when the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. When one part suffers, the rest of the body suffers. When one part of the body rejoices, the rest of the body rejoices. We share our burdens. We share our praises. We share our ups. We share our downs. We are joined to one congregation, and we covenant that we're going to do this together. We're a part of community in an intimate deep, real way. We get our hands dirty together. We are, appropriately, all up in each other's business. That's the last thing that James addresses. What we think is only our business. Sin. Point number three. There's no such thing as personal sin. There is no such thing as personal sin. Look at the end of verse 14 and going into verse 15. I'm sorry, the end of verse 15 going into verse 16. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think there's a reason why James addresses the miracle of physical healing before he addresses spiritual healing. Because both are miracles that God performs in the context of community. And physical healing is often a symbol of spiritual healing. So many of the times that Jesus heals someone physically, it was symbolic to show what he was doing for them spiritually. There are, however, some differences between when he talks about physical healing and healing from sin. The first is that when he talks about physical healing, the elders are called upon. But here, when he talks about confession... He says, to one another. 
confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That is why this passage should not be used to support confession of sin to a priest. This passage is about confession of sin and the support and the prayer of other members of the body. Now, how should we do that? I am not in any way saying that we should be a church that starts a line here down at the front and we all stand up in front of everyone and confess all of our sins. Not what I'm saying. So, in the context of confessing sin, there should be a few things that we keep in mind. First, it should be done in an appropriate setting. I was reading um, some other sermons that pastors have preached on this passage, and, um, and I was reminded of a similar story that I witnessed um, in a previous place of ministry. But this guy who was preaching said about this, that it needs to be done in appropriate settings, because he had a situation where he was teaching a Sunday school class, and he was talking about confessing sin, And he said, there's this guy that stands up in the middle of this big Sunday school class and admits to everyone there that he had been having lustful thoughts about another woman in the class. How do you think that went over? (laughs) Everyone's like, okay, Dan, um, (laughs) sit down, buddy. Let's, uh, moving on. (laughs) That's not at all what, what is being referred to here. This should be done in an appropriate setting, with trustworthy believers. From passages like this, we do and should get the idea of accountability and accountability partners, if you've heard that term before. I mentioned my best friend, Matt. Me and him talk literally every day. There's an alarm that goes off on my phone at 7 p.m. every day. Text Maddie Patty. It's an adorable nickname. I didn't give it to him, okay? Goes off every day, and every day we talk. We check in. He knows things that nobody else does. I can pour out my heart to this guy who loves me and supports me and will encourage me in the Lord. That's the second thing, that this should be done with honesty and consistency with trustworthy people. That we ought to pray that God brings us into close relationship with a few trusted others that we can be totally open and honest and forthright forthright with in a consistent fashion. Iron sharpening iron. When one falls, another is there to help them up. And finally, this shouldn't just be admission of sin. It should be shared prayer. It's not just a checkup to go, hey man, here's my list of sins this week. Okay, cool, here's mine. What's that going to do? James says, confess your sins and pray for one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
And he's just talked about physical, miraculous healing. Healing from sin? Just as miraculous. And requires just as much of the power of God working through you in community. It is the prayer that changes us, not admission of guilt. The prayer that changes us, not just talking about it or being there for each other. We, we had this, um, this dumb thing when I was in college on my, on my dorm uh, based on this passage. So we had set up accountability relationships in my dorm. Uh, there's my reminder. Text Maddie Patty later. <laughs> One hour. <laughs> we had this accountability thing that we'd set up in our dorm where we would have an accountabil- uh, accountability partner and every week we would check in with our accountability partner and we had a list of things. Have you done this, this, and this? And it was like a checklist that we tried to to make sure that we checked all the boxes. And here's how we did it. If you failed to check those boxes, your accountability partner could punch you in the stomach. Okay, this was a guy's dorm. We're like 18 years old, so you can imagine the lack of maturity here. And I distinctly remember going to a guy in the dorm and being like, hey man, I didn't check these boxes. And he hits me in the stomach. And I'm like, yeah, I deserve that. And I go back, and then vice versa. I punch him back in the stomach. Now let me ask you, do you think it worked? No. It hurt. It didn't work. What did it lead us to do? Not be honest. Because I don't want to get hit in the stomach anymore. So when he says to me, Sway, have you done this, this, and this? I'm like, yeah. As a matter of fact, I have. How about you, bud? I sure have. Cool. See you next week. And sin that remained in secret continued to grow like a cancer. All sin that is left in the dark will grow like cancer. It can only be healed by bringing it into the light. What, after all, is the first tendency that we have when we sin? To hide. Just like Adam and Eve. The very first sin, their first instinct was to hide in the bushes. To try to cover themselves with leaves. And James tells us that if we want to be healed, we have to open up to trusted members of the body and together, in community, we seek the Lord together. You guys, this is why we need each other so badly. This is why we can't follow Jesus faithfully on our own. Every single one of us is going to suffer in various ways. Every single one of us is going to sin in so many more ways. We're going to have ups. We're going to have downs. We are going to be embattled and bewitched by darkness. If we do not share the load, the burden will be too heavy to carry and we will fall away. We need to come alongside one another. And at times, we need to take each other and put each other on our shoulders to carry one another up Mount Doom to destroy that darkness together.
share the load. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the body. Thank you for community that you're building here among us. And Lord, I pray that what we would have here in this community would not just be a worship service. That we wouldn't just have a gathering. But that, Lord, you would build in here a deep unity, a closeness, that you would knit us together in hardship and in worship. That we would have relationships with one another in which we can be honest and open and truthful, carrying one another's burdens and at times carrying each other, helping one another up when we fall. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Help us to give ourselves to the body the way that you have called us to so that this church can be all that you have created it to be. And now, Lord, as we enter into your presence once more to worship, let it be out of the response of our hearts, giving you the worship that you deserve. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, Zechariah will lead us in our closing song as Doug will pass the offering basket.